Thank you, Sue. We're in uh, Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 24 today, and just looking at how this passage is talking about choosing well, as we think about that, I want to read this illustration from Philip Yancey. He wrote of a friend of his named Susan, a Christian who told Yancey that her husband did not measure up and she was actively looking for other men to meet her needs for intimacy. When Susan mentioned that she rose early each day to quote-unquote spend an hour with the Lord, I ask, in your meetings with the Father, do any moral issues come up that might influence this pending decision about leaving your husband? Susan bristled. That sounds like the response of a white Anglo-Saxon male. The Father and I are into relationship, not morality. Relationship means being wholly supportive and standing alongside me, not judging. (laughs) Interesting perspective on Christianity, isn't it? (laughs) We're in a relationship, not morality. We don't need to worry about moral things. She was choosing legality over morality. She was focusing on her legal right to be able to divorce her husband and find happiness with another man. And she was ignoring the moral standard that the father set in his word. So it begs the question, really, what kind of time was she spending with the Lord? You know, what was she reading? You know, where, where was she going with this time with the Lord? And so, you know, too often we can do that. We can get caught up in what's legally our right, and we forget about there's a moral standard that God has set. So when we lived in Southern California, we got rear-ended while at a stoplight. We hadn't started moving because there was three cars in front of us, and uh, this this vehicle, they thought we were moving already. Well, we, we weren't, and so... My parents were with us. Levi was in the car seat and in the car as well. And we were going to pick up Wade and Seth from school, and we were going to take everybody to an Anaheim Angels baseball game because somebody had given me tickets and a parking pass. And so we bought some extra tickets for my parents to be able to go with us because they were visiting at that time. And we never made it to the baseball game because our minivan was totaled. And so, um, you know, certain lawyers would have told me that I had a legal right to sue that individual. And uh, who rear-ended me, and they would help me get all that I was entitled to, right? Uh, oh, we'll get, you, we'll get you all kinds of money. But we didn't choose that route. We did go to the doctor and had some therapy sessions with a chiropractor and a massage therapist. We were pleased with how the other person's insurance company treated us. It was very fair. They worked with us to rent another minivan while my parents were still with us. They gave us more than I had expected for the minivan. I was just shocked. <laughs> God provided for us through, you know, through the accident. And I was glad that we had trusted him instead of a lawyer. And I believe that we chose well, and God was honored through it all. I think that every one of us probably has a time when we've chosen between our moral right and our legal right. And I just want you to think about one of those times today. Think about that as we go through this passage of Scripture. Take a moment to think about what you chose. Did you chose morality or legality? And so two kings meet Abram after he returns from defeating Kedor Omer. Both of them offer him items. Abram accepts the items from one king but not the other. Abram had the legal right to accept the items from both kings, but he did not have the moral right, as we'll see when we get that part of the passage. Abram had to choose well. And we'll learn from Abram that morality is more important than legality. And so as we think about that, would you just bow your heads in prayer with me? Lord, we come to you today humbled that we uh, have an opportunity to look into your word and to hear your voice through these words. Lord, I pray 
that that's what would happen today. <clears throat> that, that my voice would not be heard, but only yours. That your ideas, your principles, your truths would come out from this passage. And that, Lord, your word might transform us. And so we commit ourselves to you. We ask that your Holy Spirit would just um, guide and direct our steps. Give us ears to hear what you have for us today. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you, well, the passage gives us a little bit of background here in verse 17 and kind of the beginning of verse 18. And uh, so we want to look at that. This is what it says. After Abram returned from defeating Kedor Laomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom, or Sodom, or Sodom, uh, came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, uh, brought out bread and wine. And so Abram had, has defeated Kedor Laomer and his allies. He's made the long journey back from Hova, north of Damascus, uh, probably over 100-some uh, miles, and is just south or east of Jerusalem in the valley of Shaveh also known as the King's Valley. And then two kings come out to meet him. The first one we see is Melchizedek here. Well, actually, the first one mentioned is the king of Sodom, which is Bera. But the, we're going to look first at Melchizedek. And so look at verses uh, 18b to 20. So we see, well, we'll just start at the beginning of verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. <clears throat> so Melchizedek, he has two roles. First, he is the, he is, uh, the king of Salem, or Shalem in the Hebrew, Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. That's important. Don't forget about that. We're coming back to that. Most scholars agree that Salem is referring to Jerusalem. Uh, they just kind of dropped the Jeru uh, at the beginning. We see in Psalm chapter 76, verses 1 and 2, these words, In Judah God is known. His name is great in Israel. His tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. So that helps us understand he's talking about Jerusalem here. And this would make sense since the valley of Shaveh is just north or, or sorry, just south or east of Jerusalem. And Salem means peace. So he's the king uh, of a city that means peace. And so his second role is that he is the priest of God Most High. He wasn't just the king of Salem, but also a priest of God Most High. Now, this is the first time that the word priest is used in the Bible. And it's probable that Melchizedek is a Canaanite king. We don't know what gods he may be worshiping. We're not given much information about him here. There, there was not a Canaanite deity with the name El Elyon, which is God Most High. That's the Hebrew for it. Uh, we'll see in the blessing that Melchizedek further identifies God Most High as the creator of heaven and earth. So it would seem as though Melchizedek is a high priest of the one and only true God, but this isn't definitive. We're not given that information here. We have to say probably, perhaps, we don't know. And then we see that he brings some items that he offers to, to uh, Abram and his soldiers. First, uh, as king, he brings bread and wine. Now, um, Matthews in his commentary says the expression, bread and wine refers to daily but luxurious provisions. Bread represents more than just bread here, but food in general. What he's doing is he's laying out a, an incredible banquet 
for Abram and his soldiers. They've come back. They're tired and hungry from the travel and from the battle. The second item, uh, I'm, yeah, the second item that Melchizedek offers Abram is a blessing, and he does this as the priest of God Most High. So we see both of his roles here. He's doing something. He's providing something for Abram uh, in both of those roles. Melchizedek blesses Abram first by God Most High. Then he blesses God Most High and recognizes one of his many attributes, that God is our deliverer. Aren't you glad for that? He delivers us as we turn to him and seek his face. Melchizedek understands that God Most High is the one who gave Abram the victory over Kedorlaomer la Omer and his allies. He's recognizing that in this blessing. He's like, the God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, He's the one who allowed your enemies to be brought into your hands. And I mentioned last week that God is the one who gave wisdom to Abram to divide his men after dark in order to defeat the four kings. And Melchizedek is just acknowledging that fact and highlighting this attribute. So that leads us to principle number one this morning, that God is pleased when his people recognize his power to deliver. So what has God delivered you from recently? I want you to think about that this morning because you need to worship him for that. It's incredible. Has he delivered you from a financial burden? Maybe you're like, man, it's just it's been tough and been out of work or whatever the case may be, and then the bills are piling up and the debt's getting higher, and, and God has delivered you. He's provided a job for you. Or maybe you've been able to pay off a vehicle or, a, or, or your house or some other thing, and you're like, he's just relieved you and delivered you from this financial burden. Maybe he's re, uh, delivered you from a toxic relationship. Something was going on, maybe at work or in your neighborhood or um, whatever the case may be, and he's delivered you from that. Maybe it was a dead-end job. Maybe it was an educational struggle that you've been going through, and he's delivered you. He's helped you to understand and have wisdom in that particular class that you're taking. Maybe it's a health issue that he's delivered you from. Maybe it's anxiety or depression. Maybe it's a spiritual battle been wrestling with God about something. He's told you that you want, he wants you to do this thing, and you keep saying, I don't think so, God. There's a spiritual battle that's happening. Maybe he's delivered you from that. And so have you acknowledged that God is the one who delivered you? You know, so it's easy for us to forget that God is the one who delivers us. Our first reaction should be to praise and bless the Lord for delivering us. And so that takes us to our first next step today, and that's to acknowledge that God has delivered me from, and I just want you to fill in that blank this morning, by his power. What has he delivered you from? And let him know it. Just praise his name today for how he's delivered you, how he's taking care of you. Melchizedek offered this uh, Abram nourishment and blessing, those two items, as king and as priest. And here's just a couple of interesting thoughts about Melchizedek. We saw it in, in the passage that uh, Sue read this morning. Baldwin, in her commentary, says this, Melchizedek appears from nowhere. His parentage is not given, even though Genesis succeeds in genealogies. Yet even this omission is deliberate, for according to the writer of the Hebrews, it signifies an eternal priesthood. So I want to read those verses to you again out of Hebrews uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abram returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just like, uh, Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abram, Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. So who is Melchizedek? 
Do we really know? He's not mentioned with the six groups or kings that Kedorlaomer and his allies defeated on their way to battle the five rebellious kings as they headed south on the eastern side of the Jordan River. He's not mentioned with the five kings of the Dead Sea area, even though Jerusalem is in that area. He's not mentioned as one of Abram's allies. So some scholars believe that Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Christ. Gangle and Bramer mentioned that many interpreters believe that this was another Christophany. That means a demonstration of the pre-incarnate Christ. And we're going to see that throughout the Old Testament. How like Christ shows up <laughs> before he's born, you know, before he comes to earth the first time. This pre-incarnate Christ is showing up and he's helping people out and doing incredible things. And Psalm chapter 110 verse 4 says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This psalm was written by David, and the theme of the psalm is the credentials for the Messiah and the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. So I think that's pretty cool. Perhaps Abram was just, um, has just been nourished and blessed by Christ himself. And if that's true, then Abram's reaction to the nourishment and blessing are even more powerful. We see his reaction here. He gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything from the plunder. And if Melchizedek is Christ pre-incarnate, then Abram is tithing one-tenth to the Lord. How cool is that? The spiritual side of this is amazing. For Abram, it would, have, it would be an acknowledgement that the Lord owns everything and that he had graciously allowed Abram to steward his wealth. And so that leads us to principle two this morning. When we tithe, God is glorified because it acknowledges that he owns everything and has the ability to provide for us. That's what Abram was doing through this. He was like, I'm just acknowledging that God most high is in control of everything. He owns everything. He allows me to steward just a little bit of it. And I'm going to worship him by giving back to him. This is the first time that tithing is mentioned in the Bible. Abram was already tithing before it was mentioned in the Jewish law. And here's some important thoughts about tithing. Tithing is giving the Lord 10% of our income. Warren Wearsby says that he's... Uh, quoting a, a godly deacon from one of his churches. If the Old Testament Jew under law could tithe, how much more ought New Testament Christians under grace? Like they were required by law to give, you know? And now, by grace, we should be giving. Wearsby goes on, he says, the attitude with which we give uh, is important. As R.G. Letourneau states, if you tithe because it pays, it won't pay. Right? So like, why, what's the purpose behind why you're tithing? You're like, well, I'm tithing to the church so that God's going to bless me. He's going to you know, give me a whole bunch of stuff. And you know, that's why I'm tithing. Mm, that's the wrong attitude, the wrong purpose, the wrong reason. After a morning session at Vacation Bible School, my grandson, Aline says, my grandson, Mackie, complained to a friend that there wasn't an, enough red crayons to go around, and he only got one cookie at snack time. Well, said his friend, who remembered their offering, it really wasn't too bad for a dime. Right? Well, we gave a dime in the offering, we got one cookie, and we had to share a crayon. Right? But see how that is like the purpose and attitude behind the giving? It's like, what am I going to get in return? So whom we give to is also important. Wearsby continues, says, We do not give our tithes and offerings to the church, the pastor, or the members of the finance committee. If our giving is a true act of worship, we give to the Lord. And for that reason, 
we want to give our very best. That's so true. We're not giving to the church. You're not giving to me. You're not giving to the finance commission or the board. You're giving to the Lord. That changes our perspective on, on giving completely and how we give. Perhaps the first question we have to ask ourselves is this. Are we even tithing at all? Some people just take whatever's in their wallet and put it in the offering. But does that represent 10% of all that God has given to us? Does that kind of giving acknowledge God's ownership of everything that we have? Maybe you're ready to take this a second next step today, and it's to begin tithing 10% of all that God has given to me to steward. If you're not tithing, I want to encourage you to start. Does our tithing glorify God? Does our tithing acknowledge that God owns everything and has the ability to provide for us? Too often we're concerned with not having enough money to pay our bills at the end of the month and we believe we can't afford to tithe. And this simply proves that we don't truly believe that God has the ability to provide for us. I can give you example upon example upon example of people who felt that way. And then when they just were faithful and started tithing, they found out that they had money left over at the end of the month. And they were able to pay all their bills. That just proves that God is in control and he owns everything and he can provide for us. In 1987, the largest single-day stock market crash since 1929 took place. In one day, my wife Renee and I lost more than one-third of our life savings and the money uh, we had put aside for our kids' college education. This is Richard Stern speaking. I was horrified and became like a man obsessed, each night working past mid midnight, analyzing on spreadsheets all that we had lost, <clears throat> and the next day calling in orders to sell our remaining stocks and mutual funds to prevent further losses. Of course... That turned out to be the absolute worst thing I could have done. I was consumed with anguish over our lost money, and it showed. One night when I was burning the midnight oil, Renee came and sat beside me. Honey, she said, this thing is consuming you in an unhealthy way. It's only money. We have our marriage, our health, our friends, our children, and a good income. So much to be thankful for. You need to let go of this and trust God. Don't you hate it when someone crashes your pity party? I didn't want to let go of it. I told her I felt responsible for our family and that uh, she didn't understand it was my job to worry about things like this. She, she suggested we pray about it, something that had, hadn't occurred to me. So we did. At the end of the prayer, to my bewilderment, Renee said, now I think we need to get out the checkbook and write some big checks to our church and ministries we support. We need to show God that we know this is his money and not ours. I was flabbergasted at the audacity of this suggestion. But in my heart, I knew she was right. So that night, we wrote some sizable checks, put them in envelopes, addressed to various ministries, and sealed them. And that's when I felt the wave of relief. We had broken the spell that money had cast over me. It freed me from the worries that had consumed me. I actually felt reckless and giddy. And then he quotes, God, please catch us because we just took a crazy leap of faith. And he will. He will catch you. He will provide for you and take care of you as you're faithful to him. And so here's my challenge for some of you. Perhaps there are those of us who have faithfully tied 10% for many years, and God has continued to provide for us. Wearsby says tithing is a good place to begin, but as the Lord blesses, we must increase that percentage if we are to practice the kind of grace giving that's described in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. 
Many years ago, we lived in, when Judy and I lived in Missouri, our pastor at the time had preached a message on giving. And at the end, he encouraged uh, those in the congregation to consider giving more than 10%. And Judy and I took that to heart. We began to pray about it. And individually, the Holy Spirit placed a percentage on our hearts. And when we came together to talk about it, it was the same percentage. And we began to tithe at that percentage. Now, over the years, when we've moved and when we've changed jobs and things like that, we've gone back to the 10%. But just a couple of years ago, God just instilled in our hearts again that we need to increase that. And so we did. And we're giving it more than, than 10%. Now, maybe you're thinking, there's just no way. How in the world? God just provides. Here's one little step you could take that would increase the amount consider tithing 10% on your gross instead of your net income. We've done that for years. <laughs> and that just increases a little bit. But maybe if, if you can, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord, if you're an individual, ask him you know, yourself. If you're a married couple, then together ask the Lord. But here's the challenge. I want to give you the same challenge that our pastor in Missouri gave to us, and it's the third next step this morning. And that's to ask the Lord what percentage of my or our income I or we should be giving to him. And then be obedient. And just see him do incredible things. And so we see that Abram's reaction to being nourished and blessed was to tithe a tenth to Melchizedek. Abram was also offered something from Bera, king of Sodom. What would his reaction be to that offer? Let's look at verses 21 to 24. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Anir, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. <clears throat> and so what we see here is the second point this morning is bribed. The first one was blessed, and this one's bribed. We see the offer. You know, it's more of a request or a demand than an offer, per se. <laughs> Bear's audacity and attitude show a lack of humility and gratefulness. He, he has no right to make any request or demand because the victor is the one who sets the stipulations for the dividing of plunder. Abram was the one who had the legal right to determine how things would be divided and dispersed. And Bera wants to have the people of Sodom return to him. The Hebrew word for people here also has the meaning of soul. He wants the souls to be returned. From a spiritual perspective, Bera was asking for the souls of the people of Sodom. The people of Sodom had been sinning greatly against the Lord, as we saw in Genesis 13, 13. Bera didn't want to give up the souls of the Sodom sinners. And we see a contrast between Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, and Bera, whose name means son of evil. Do you see that it's between good and evil? It's the, the age-old uh, battle that's going on between good and evil. Abram was having to choose well. Every one of us has to choose well when confronted with two options, between morality and legality, between good and evil. Bera doesn't care about the goods. He's fine with giving the goods to Abram. And the amazing thing is that Satan is fine with us keeping the goods of this world as long as he can have our souls. 
we see Abram's reaction to this quote-unquote offer. What we see is Abram's personal refusal to bear his offer. That's the first part. Abram refuses for two reasons. The first one is this, and most important, is his desire to keep the oath that he had made to the Lord prior to the battle. Abram had raised his hand to Jehovah. He had taken an oath. Think about in a court of law when they make you swear, you know, they swear you in, right? To tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. I don't know if they still do that so help me God thing anymore, but they make you raise your hand. They make you swear an oath. I'm reminded of those who become citizens of the United States and how they raise their hand and take an oath. And this kind of oath-taking is also found in our military. I'm sure that Noah had to do that just recently, right? Raise his hand, take an oath to defend our country. You see it within the police force and even the president of the United States when they're all sworn in. Abram was not going to break his oath before the Lord simply because he had the legal right to the goods. For Abram, morality was more important than legality. That takes us to our third principle today, which is God is honored when we keep our word. Now, whether we have taken an oath before the Lord or with other people, God is honored when we keep that word. It may not be easy to keep our word because sometimes we make promises and take oaths too quickly without thinking. So in the Old Testament, we see what it says about uh, making an oath. In Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, it says this, When a man makes a, a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. And then in Deuteronomy chapter um, uh, 23, verses 21 to 23, we see these words again. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay, to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. But then what we find in the New Testament with Matthew and James, they're instructing us in the New Testament not to swear or take an oath, but to say either yes or no. Matthew chapter uh, 5, verses 33 to 37, tell us this. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And then James in writing to the believers there in chapter 5, verse 12, says this, Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. So what oath or promise do you need to keep to the Lord or to another person? You made the promise, you made the oath, but you haven't completed it. You haven't, been, uh, you haven't uh, taken care of that oath. So I encourage you to do that this week. And that's the fourth next step this morning, is to honor God by keeping my word. Abram uses the same words as Melchizedek in calling Jehovah God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Abram is affirming that the one true God is God Most High who created everything. And then the second reason uh, that um, Abram doesn't take the goods from Bera is this. He wanted the Lord to be glorified and not man. Abram wasn't going to take even the smallest thing, a thread or a shoestring from Bera, Abram was relying completely on the Lord to provide for him 
and to bless him. If he had taken the goods from Bera, then Bera could have claimed uh, the glory for making Abram rich. Abram wasn't going to let that happen. And while Abram doesn't accept any goods for himself, he doesn't require his soldiers or his allies to adhere to the same conviction. It was a personal conviction, an oath that Abram had made. We see Abram's corporate acceptance. He acknowledges the food that they had already eaten, he would accept. That's kind of a foregone conclusion, right? <laughs> okay, guys, throw it up right here. He said, we're going to give the food back to Bear. Uh, we're not going to take that food. No, it's a foregone conclusion that he said, we're going to accept those things that we've already eaten. And he also encourages Anir, Eshkol, and Mamre to accept their share of the goods. Abram chose well in accepting the food, drink, and blessing from Melchizedek and refusing the goods from Bera. He showed that his moral obligation to keep his word was more important than his legal right to the goods that Bera had offered him. And so as a way of re- review, let me ask you a couple of questions. Have you recognized God's power to deliver you and have you thanked him for doing so? Are you glorifying God through your tithing? Does it show that you believe God owns everything and has the ability to provide for you? Are you honoring God by keeping your word? And you know, we can thank the Lord publicly as a body of believers for how he has delivered us and provided for us. We can ask others to hold us accountable to an oath or promise that we've made so that we go ahead and complete it. As we think about this whole moral and legal side of things, I want to read you this illustration The movie Nuremberg, based on the book Nuremberg, Infamy on Trial by Joseph Persisco, is about a series of trials held in Nuremberg, Germany in 1945 to 1946 in which former Nazi leaders were tried as war criminals by the International Military Tribunal. In the scene in the movie, the Nazi defendant, Hans Frank, played uh, by Frank Moore, is attempting to explain his action to Army psychologist Gustav Gilbert, played by Matt Craven. Frank explains, I turned my diaries over to the Americans voluntarily. You see, they proved that I tried to resign as governor general of Poland. I did not approve of the persecution of the Jews. Anyone reading my diaries, they will know what was in my heart. They will understand that such things I wrote about Jews, the orders I signed, they were not sincere. I believe you, Frank, says Gilbert, and yet you did do those things. How do you explain it? I don't mean legally. I'm I'm not a lawyer or a judge. I mean, how do you explain it to yourself? I don't know, replies Frank. It's as though I am two people, the Hans Frank you see here and the Hans Frank, the Nazi leader. I wonder how the other Frank could do such things. This Frank looks at that Frank and says, you're a terrible man. And what does that Frank say back, asks Gilbert. Frank replied, uh, Frank, appearing to plead for understanding, replies, he says, I just wanted to keep my job. And so often, that could be true of us. We're going to choose legality over morality simply because we want to keep our job. We want to just be okay with where we are instead of following what's morally right, the standards that God has set for us. And so I hope that you're encouraged and challenged today to be transformed by God's word. And as Gina Roxy come uh, to lead us in the closing song, would you just bow your heads with me? Lord, we come to you today, and we thank you for the model of Abram and how he held to that standard as he had made an oath before you, Lord God. We thank you that he modeled that for us, and I pray that we would do the same, that when we take an oath before you, Lord God, that we will keep that promise. 
we thank you, Lord God, that we see tithing for the first time in Scripture and, and how uh, Abram just gave freely. And I pray, too, Lord God, that we would do the same. We just commit ourselves to you now and ask that you would do the work that only you can do through your Holy Spirit in each heart and mind. We just ask this all in Jesus' name.